Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 13th of July 2020 and this is episode 169. On today's podcast, Neil Storey talks about his book on the service of the territorial battalions of the Norfolk Regiment during the Great War, and in particular the Sandringham Company. This book is published by Pen and Sword. I spoke to Neil over the interweb from his home in Norfolk. Neil, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Hello, Tom, and thank you for inviting me on board. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, and hello to all my many friends in the Western Front Association all across Great Britain and beyond. What first got me interested in the First World War, I was a young man growing up in the county of Norfolk, and although certainly I didn't know my grandfather's dad, my my great-granddad, Frederick James Griffin, there were stories of him, and he was held in great affection by his family, my, my grandmother and his, her brothers and sisters, all, all, they loved him. And they always said he would have loved you. And, you know, as you grow up, you start, if you're going to get that interest, I think often it starts at an early age. And so I wanted to find a photograph of my great granddad, and I, I couldn't find one. Unfortunately, when he'd passed away, there'd been a big clear out, and you know how these things happen. So it sent me on a bit of a mission to try and find this photograph of him and, and learn more about him, because he never really spoke about the First World War. But a lot of his friends, those from his generation, were still around, or their their widows, or their children. And so that began to build this great love and affection and interest. I'm a Norfolk man born and bred. They're Norfolk folks born and bred, all proud of it. And and so it started a a lifelong interest, a, a, a kind of comradeship between myself, descendant families, the wider family of the regiment. And it's been quite a journey. Now, your book looks at the territorial battalions of the Norfolk Regiment, specifically the 4th and 5th battalions. Why do you think your book is important? I think it's important because there are all sorts of myths and legends about the First World War. But one of the best known and myths of the Great War is this this alleged disappearance, this claimed disappearance of the Sandringham Company, the battalion. Oh, it's turned into television. There have been an inference that there were Turkish atrocities, a massacre where men were shot away. And I thought, oh, for goodness sake, I... It's it, this, the truth needs to be told. And over the years, I've researched it. I've, I've acquired quite a volume of material over the years. And it was really in 2015 that we had a very, very special project with Sandringham School and Sandringham Estate to tell the story of the Sandringham and West Newton men and what happened to them and their comrades. Because it's not just about one company. It's about really not just the 5th Battalion, the 4th Battalion. What happened to these lads are local battalions in the First World War. Now, what exactly is the Sandringham Estate? I know that sounds a very obvious question, but I'm sure many Mm. of our listeners across the world won't know what the Sandringham Estate is. Well, nowadays, 
people will know it as the country retreat in England of the royal family. So they will go up to Balmoral in Scotland, but within England, the royal family go to Sandringham House for just before Christmas. There's normally a wonderful meal there. They will stay into the new year. Before the present royal family, their, their ancestors, the Queen's uh, father, His Majesty King George VI, it was a, a tradition that he maintained there, uh, even throughout the Second World War years. And then King George VI's father, King George V, it, well, he inherited the estate from his dad, His Majesty King Edward VII. And King Edward VII, the, the son, the Prince Wales, the Prince, uh, he, he was the son of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. It was really bought with the intention that uh, Edward VII, who was being a, possibly a little bit of a wayward young man, should be shown the ways of the country to get him out of London and any sort of bad habits he might be getting into there. Do what the old House of Hanover does best. Get involved with some farming. It's good for you. Get you back to earth and... And that's where he was. And they, they acquired the Sandringham Estates, the Sandringham House, the, sand, the land, the farms, extensive gardens that he developed with the, the help of wonderful architects, that the old house was completely redeveloped. And it looks, it's, a, it's a quite a piece of work, it really is. Some pe people in its day loved it, some um, were rather derisory because it looked too much of a hodgepodge. But Sandringham is Sandringham. Now, whereabouts in Norfolk is Sandringham? Well, it's really, it's in the west of the county. So if you think of Norfolk on Great Britain, you've got a big bump on the right-hand side. We jokingly call it the Far East. And if you look to the top half of the Far East, the bottom half is Suffolk. And on the top half, you'll get to Norfolk. And if you go to the west of that, that's where you will find Sandringham. It's not it's a short train ride from Kingsley or from Kingsley when there was a, a line connecting them there. Now, the men who formed the Sandringham Company, drawn from the Sandringham Estate, were uh, territorials. What were territorials and what was their function? Well, I think what we need to do is be absolutely clear about the Sandringham Company, because there have been people that become interested in the story. And, of course, some have just come to it via the, the television or things that they've heard. So let's get it right. The Sandringham Company began as a company of the volunteers. Now, that's the old volunteer system, the forerunner of the territorial force. And that was that was begun way back in for the Sandringham Company in 1906. They were part of the third volunteer battalion of the Norfolk Regiment. They were really it was Frank Beck was uh, the, the Queen's estate agent. He ran the estate. For Her Majesty, but oh, sorry, His Majesty King George V, Frank Beck ran the estate for George V as his father had done uh, before him. There was there's still an estate manager to this very day, and uh, he was given the the, the King King Edward VII was very keen on uniforms, very keen on military units, and they needed to look smart because the royals from all over the world would come and guest at Sandringham House, you know, the King and Queen of Denmark, King and Queen of Norway, King of Portugal, King Alfonso of Spain, even Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, Cousin Willy would come and stay. So whatever the seventh really wanted was to have a military show so that when these royals 
racked up at Wolverton Station nearby. They had, they had a particular royal waiting room. That's where the dignitaries would be. And lined up outside would be the volunteers in their red tunics, blue home ser- service cloth helmets, the spike on top, blue trousers, dark, dark blue with the red stripe down the side, you know, with the Slade Wallace webbing, and they would parade. And then the carriage would drive, the king would normally inspect, the carriage would then drive away with the dignitaries or royalty, and in front of Sandringham House would line up the Sandringham Company. So in the old volunteer system, and it was replaced with the territorial force, it got rid of an awful lot of the old dead wood. If you see pictures of early 20th century and indeed late 19th century members of the volunteer force, you'll see that some of them are quite large chaps. Some of them have big beards. They're older men. They've been in it for years. And they wanted to really freshen things up. So Richard Burden Haldane, he implemented something called the Isha Report, which really looked at what was wrong with the volunteers of Great Britain in the South African War. And it's often a question of uh, bad health, rickety legs, uh, too old, not enough experience, not properly, tr- not trained for modern military standards. So they said, well, why don't we really concentrate on the regular army? Let's have a, a regulars or have normally two battalions per county regiment, one to police the empire, one on home service. And if there was a spot of bother in Europe, well, that could all of those various battalions of home service and regulars could form a British expeditionary force and go out and give the enemy, of course, they didn't mention the Kaiser, give the enemy a bloody nose. So with all of the regulars gone, who is going to defend the homeland? That's why they created the territorial force, part-time soldiers. So they would train a couple of nights a week, go away on weekend camps and manoeuvres, and then they'd go along for at least a two-week-long, ten days camp in the summertime. So that was their big brigade training camp. They used to nickname them the Saturday Night Soldiers. So these are part-time soldiers, they are territorials, which also meant when they joined up, they were told, oh no lads, you won't be needed for service abroad. You know, there's been problems in the past, no, no, we'll train you up well, but you will be here to defend the home territory. Hence, the Territorial Force. Now, were people uh, who joined the Territorial um, Force uh, and worked at the Sandingham State, were they volunteers or were they pressured to join? No, there was no pressure whatsoever. To my knowledge and the accounts that I've read, you've got to remember this is a time when every battalion, this new Territorial Force, uh, they would often have waiting lists, you know, particularly young lads. You see, if you were in the territorials, you you could join age 16 or 17, sometimes even a shade younger. Uh, You could be a band boy or you could be a bugler drummer. You know, so there'd be quite a waiting list and you had to be good to have your entry into the territorial band. They wanted the best of the best. So some companies within the territorial force had their own bands, not just a battalion band. This is a time before television. Film is very moving for pictures, very, very new. So what would your life revolve around? Well, at weekends, you might want to take part in or go and watch the local football. Now, they followed local football very much in the same way that modern people might follow the Premier Leagues or international football. They know all the stories, know who's up to whatever and playing. These were very different times. 
And if you you were fit enough and you you could go with your mates, then you, there is a very good chance that you would fill your uh, weekday evenings and time up rather than going down the pub, go and join the territorials, have a little bit of adventure, look good in a uniform, look smart. And ultimately, lads, there's no danger because we wouldn't be going abroad. We're doing our bit for king and country on the home turf. And also, you get paid. You certainly do. You you get paid, and you get, when you're out on your camps, you get well fed too. We come to the outbreak of war. Now, what um, unit were the Sandringham Company part of? Obviously, the, the unit designations changed once the territorial force came into being. So what unit were they part of um, once the... Once war was declared. Well, from 1908, when the Territorial Force was created, they were part of the 5th Battalion, the Norfolk Regiment. Now, the 5th Battalion had their headquarters in East Deerham, and then they had and towards from, if you followed the top seaboard of the county of Norfolk, from King's Lynn all the way round to Great Yarmouth and Galston, dotted along that seaboard were the companies. So you had the Lynns, you had uh, Cromer, Sheringham, just inland a bit, North Walsham, right the way round to Great Yarmouth and Galston. And they also had uh, smaller platoons just inland, and they would come to their local company headquarters for their drill nights, and then occasionally go all go down to Deerham for some of the big parades. The 4th Battalion, the Norfolk Regiment, had their headquarters at the Chapelfield Gardens Drill Hall in Norwich and in the south of the county of Norfolk, down towards Diswell. And that also was a territorial battalion of the Norfolk Regiment. Yes, the four, ultimately there was the 4th and the 5th Battalions. They were territorial infantry, and there was the 6th Battalion, and they were the Norfolk Cyclists, and they were nicknamed the Gas Pipe Cavalry. They were seen as quite something in their day, though, because the idea of uh, using uh, cyclist troops for military purposes was quite a, th- quite a thing, particularly after the, the Boer War. And uh, Colonel Besant and the, the, command, the man who went on to command uh, the Sixth Cyclists, uh, Bernard Henry Leith's prior, uh, were very keen to push for the, the cyclist as a key part of, of mil- for, for the purposes of the military. And they wrote guides on that. But as a unit, the Sixth Cyclists were not to see active service during the First World War. Now, what happened to the company on the outbreak of war in August 1914? In August 1914, the Sandringham Company joined up with all of the other companies. Uh, a lot of them travelled by train, uh, the ones in the Lynn area. Uh, they, they got to Kings Lynn Station and then they went down to East Durham uh, where they had the headquarters in the marketplace. That's where the boys mustered up. There was also the local field ambulance. They were mustered and uh, they had to wait. It was a lovely day. Sun was out after a wet start. Tipped down for rain for the Downham lads and lads over at Kings Lynn. But by the time you get to the afternoon and they're all in Durham, the sun was out. And they had in the church rooms medical inspectors, uh, medical inspection of the soldiers, Dr. Digan, Dr. Howlett. They were the, the two main doctors there. And uh, they examined the men, make sure they had no communicable illnesses or nasties, if you see what I mean. Check the teeth. Yes, looking good, fit, passing well. And they were in Durham for a brief amount of time and then they shot them down 
to uh, Colchester because they never re- once they'd mobilised troops, they didn't want them on home turf. They didn't feel that they would kind of gel together as soldiers when you're able to, you know, if you have a bit of leave time off, go home. Some of the guys went home at night. You know, you're, you're, you need to get the boys, get them away. And so they went down to Essex and they, they're going to go to Colchester and they thought, oh, great. We're going to end up with the Colchester Barracks. Oh, that's famous. You know, the old Norfolks had been, the regular battalions had been there. But oh, oh no, lads. No, no, no. That's Kitchener's army that's going to be in the Colchester Barracks. We have somewhere else for you. And so they put them in the County Lunatic Asylum. <laughs> but they were. Now, what, what, was, what were the 5th Battalion Norfolk Regiment part of? Were they part of a local division? Yeah, what, what they were. They were the 4th and the 5th Battalion of the Norfolk Regiment, along with the 4th and 5th Battalions of the Suffolk Regiment, made the 163 Brigade, which was part of 54 East Anglian uh, Division. In 1915, yes. the 5th Battalion was sent to Gallipoli and involved in an attack um, on the 12th of August 1915, in which the Sandrum Company allegedly disappeared. Could you tell us about the myths that surrounded this event? What we need to look at, first of all, is the idea of the Sandringham Company. Now, on the outbreak of war, you had eight different companies. The Sandringham Company was known as E Company. Then on the 19th, 9th of January, 1915, the standing orders, they reflect the reorganisation. Battalions had to go down to a four-company system out of the eight. So E and F companies of the 5th Battalion, the Norfolk Regiment, amalgamated to form C Company. And just before the attack on the 12th of August 1915, a lot of these men that had trained together and worked together in these companies, they weren't able to serve together because the problem was that there was a disparity in numbers. So to try and even out the numbers, they moved some of the men around so they had more even numbers in each of the uh, companies going into the attack. But, and this is an, an important but to this, if you are from a local area. So the Lynn Company, uh, the the Yarmouth lads, the Sandringham lads, the Downham lads, you don't lose that identity. So when they went into the action and things are starting to get a bit hot, which I'll come on to, the shout went up, come on Sandringhams, come on Yarmouth, onward, the identity, the, 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 the civic pride, the, the, the identity of the lads from where they came from certainly came out. Some people have tried to say that the, the Sandringham Company didn't even exist by the time of the 12th of August. Well, that's not, it's not strictly 100% true. You see, the Sandringham Company was always a bit different. It was the only company that was raised entirely from a monarch's estate, in the, from, from the monarch's estate, in the entire British army. The commanding officer of the Sandringham Company, the company commander, Frank Beck, was the king's estate agent. And the king took a personal interest in the progress of the Sandringham company. And people say, oh, no, no, it all got busted up, all lost. No, because even months and months after the action, and we show it quite clearly in the book, for example, and this is one of the best examples, on the 25th of April, 1916. Now, remember, they've gone to Egypt, they're on the def- they've done the defences of, of Suez. The 5th Battalion 
they're visited by the Prince of Wales. Now, that's the man that later became the Duke of Windsor with GOC of nine corps. And it says in standing orders that the Sandringham Company will parade separate. So all of these men that were from the Sandringham state, they all knew who they were. Of course they did. Those that had survived the action. And so they stepped forward, the Sandringhams, and they would be inspected first. And when very senior officers or important visitors came, this, these are the men of the Sandringham Company. So I think it's important that, yes, the, the companies were uh, amalgamated, but the identity, and not just of the Sandringhams, the identity of each of these groups of lads was certainly preserved until they went into action on the 12th of August 1915, and for some of them beyond that date as well, because, of course, the casualties on the 12th of August 1915 were horrific. What, what are the myths surrounding uh, this action? Yes, well, the, the myth is, is caused because the men had to advance. They advanced into an area and were surrounded by Turkish troops. They were overrun, and we never took the ground again. Uh, there were... Later on in the Gallipoli campaign, there was one particular instance when Australian troops made the forward ground and they found a member of the Sandringham Company and uh, they found his 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 tag and they gave him uh, his name is John Lee Geimer uh, and he was given a decent funeral his grave was marked during the course of the, the war in the immediate aftermath of the action it wasn't known what had happened to the majority of the men who were missing uh, the turkish authorities were never desperately good at being forthcoming with information about those that they had taken prisoner. There were also the, the fact that because the Tur Turkish troops had overrun the area, we couldn't go and see who's wounded, who's dead, what's happened. And so questions are asked, and they're questions from pretty high up. In fact, they come from the king, who writes to Ian Hamilton, the senior commander over the, the entire Gallipoli campaign. And he asks of Hamilton, what has become of my estate agent and the Sandringham Company? Remember, this is the king. Hamilton can't tell him. He speaks to the senior officers uh, beneath him and they go, they go down to brigade level, down to battalion level. Nobody can tell them. So Hamilton has a bit of a turn of phrase, which can, can really be seen as quite flowery. And he, in his final dispatch that was only published in January 1916, his final dispatch from Gallipoli. He states that the, he it speaks of the ardent souls of the men from of the Sandringham Company, a company from the King's estate. And the 5th Battalion, speaking of them uh, charging into a forest and lost to sight and sound, and not one of them came back. And of course, this sort of thing is red rag to a bull for the press, because there's talk of disappearance, there's royalty interest that they're going to latch onto, and with within the telling, within this the appearance of the dispatch in the London Gazette, the newspapers latch onto it and talk about the vanished battalion. The men who disappeared, the men of the King's Company who didn't return, the Sandrian Company, the lost, but, you know, the, the, the company becomes the lost battalion, the vanished battalion. And even though men who had, and there weren't many who came back, but those who did uh, survive, it was roughly 150 men that pushed 
far, far forward uh, under the, the full battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Horace George Proctor Beecham. Beecham led the men through its base, uh, either a very small village or uh, farm buildings at Anafata. And they were going beyond. They pushed beyond. And that's when they were overwhelmed. And roughly between six and seven men of that forward advance got back. And uh, they joined the remnants of the battalion in a holding trench. And some of them, people like Sergeant Theo Randall, drummer Frederick Wells, 17-year-old, and Lance Corporal Robert Tiptod, all have their accounts. And there were others that wrote the action, but these were lads that made it far forward. Their stories appeared in the local press, but they were not picked up by the nationals. And so what emerged was this, this mystery, which was only really addressed after the war which we'll can come on to later how was that actually i I know i know before we actually get on to what happened to them Mm. how's how's it been portrayed uh, in media i remember one uh, drama with david jason who i think led them into the mist and they were never seen again how's it been portrayed in in television and film yes this this emerges from in the 1960s there was quite an interest in uh, ufos (laughs) believe it or not and there was a gathering, supposedly, of, of, of veterans that certainly took place. And three veterans from the Australian forces put their names to a story where they thought a, a particular battalion, they, they hummed and hard about who they were. They thought it might have been the Fourth Norfolks that were seen going into a valley. And they, it's, all they see is this cloud of dust. And then they, they, they disappear. I didn't see them coming out the other side. Now, it's the wrong battalion. The 4th are not in action. And in fact, where the Australian soldiers were, uh, the chances are that they couldn't actually see the plane of Anafata. It's a completely different unit, which also got got a, a nasty hammering on that day. But the media, again, picks up on this story uh, it gets mashed in with oh well the assumption is it's got to be not the fourth it's the fifth battalion you know the ones who disappeared back in 1915 so the stories get mashed together and then in the retelling of that story in, in various mystery magazines and books and tv documentaries it it, it metamorphoses into this story of a cloud that comes down and carries these men off and not one of them came back. And yes, there was, I think it was in the 1990s, no, a long while ago, the David Jason played Frank Beck. It was it was based on a book by Nigel McCreary, a thoroughly enjoyable book, and one of the books that, you know, inspired this journey. And uh, I've met Nigel, and I, I liked him a lot. I, I, I thought, what he, he's, he's brought the story forward. But what happened was that there was an account attached to this story. And this is by a man by the name of Gordon Parker. Now, Gordon Parker had, he'd been a signaller, in, in in the 54 Division, uh, in Gallipoli, he's a genuine First World War veteran who claimed to have met up with the, the Reverend Pierpont Edwards. Now, Charles Pe- Pierpont Edwards, he was uh, a divisional padre for the 54 Div. He had known the Norfolks in the field. He'd been in there in the aftermath of uh, the 12th of August action, and he'd gone out with the Grave reg- Registration Unit. So if the meeting with him really did happen, I mean, it's got a lot of credibility. And of course, when they, Parker, 
and Pip on Edwards got together. Parker claims they started talking about Gallipoli. Well, that that's natural that they would start talking about that. But then Parker claims that uh, Pip on Edwards was fighting a campaign. Now, he was known as the fighting parson, mostly for his political campaigns, but he did an awful lot for uh, veterans' rights, looking after those that needed a pension after the war. He was a, a, a true fighting parson. But Parker claimed that Pierpont Edwards had told him that the death or deaths of the men of the Norfolk Regiment needed to be investigated because most of them were found with bullet wounds to the head. The, the skulls were shown with them with these bullet wounds. And, of course, that gets latched onto by, by the media. The story is retold in the, 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 the dramatisation of all the king's men. And so it's another part where, where there was these sort of accusations of there being uh, a massacre and a war crime that, that I really don't think are desperately helpful. To, to the story. So, so Davy Jason leads his troop into the mist. Now, maybe you can help us remove the mist and find out <sighs> what happened to them on the 12th of August. Yes, well, the 12th of August, it, it's, it's a hot, sunny day, and the men of the 5th Norfolks, along with the, the rest of their brigade, have not, they've been in the country, they, after a long, long journey, thousands of miles, they've been in the country little more than two days. In the afternoon, and they just kind of, they've moved up country, they're just settling into their lines. Around about 3 to 3.15, some say as late as 3.30, Horace George Proctor Beecham, their commanding, the battalion commander of the 5th, says, right, lads, uh, we're, we're going to have a, going in for an attack this afternoon. In fact, it's not, it shouldn't be too bad. We're just going to flush out the snipers. Well, he couldn't be clear. And when the officers got together, according to the officers that survived, they all agree that Proctor Beecham said, I'm very sorry, that Brigade have not been very clear about what they want us to do. He's frustrated. They're given maps, quite a pile of maps, none of which actually cover the area which the uh, drive or the attack is to be conducted. And this is not just something experienced by the men of the 5th Norfolks, but there's the, the 1st 8th Battalion of Hampshire Regiment. And there is also uh, the men of the Suffolk Regiment, 1st 5th Suffolks, all part of the brigade. And there are accounts from all of those battalions that say quite clearly we, we have not been given uh, suffi sufficient information about what, what's expected of us. And, and in fact, and I can quote Captain Clayton Ratsey of the 1st 8th Hans, who said, my God, we're all going to be killed. And some of the officers, you know, given so, such poor information and rubbish maps, they threw them into bushes. It was seen, it was noted. But soldiers do what they're told. These are brave men. They trusted in their, their senior officers. There it was, and that's what needs to be done. Now, there is a little bit of confusion about what time did the attack start. Some uh, say that it, attacked, it started at four o'clock. Well, it was at four o'clock, very late in the day, that the men of the Suffolk Regiment were informed that they were going to be going into the attack. Uh, and in fact, as a general rule of thumb, it's about 4.45 p.m. What was observed is that the opening barrage started at four o'clock, and the barrage was mostly high explosive shells. Now, of course, that makes a good bang, plenty of dust thrown up, but it doesn't do a lot of damage. There's little or no shrapnel shell because these are the high explosive shells being fired from the, the battleships in the bay. Uh, we've got no uh, divisional artillery 
to back us up. Incredible as it may sound, but there wasn't. So they've got to fire the guns of the of the boats and of our lads. And a number of the accounts say, look, for all the good that it did, all it did was really announce that there is an attack coming and it enabled the Turkish forces to prepare to engage with our lads. It's a brigade attack, so 163 Brigade, they're given this order. And, it, and as I say, it's pretty vague. They think it's a, a driving action to clear out snipers from the area to see if they could get as far as what was described as the village and a farter. And if we can, hold it and there would be reinforcements that would follow them up the next day. And in the ideal world, can we actually get up to the heights? So the man who led the attack was uh, the battalion commander, or the man who led the 5th, Horace George Proctor Beecham, with uh, Randall Cubitt, one of his company commanders uh, from the Cubits of Holing Hall. And it was said that they, they went out with cigars in their hand. Remember, you're not climbing out of deep trenches like on the first day of the Somme. This is an advance across very flat land. If you go out to the area of the attack, there's, if you find Asmac Cemetery out near uh, Anafata Plain, Anafata Over, you stand by the gate of Asmac, you're looking across, it's, if you know the fields of East Anglia, particularly Norfolk, it's not entirely dissimilar. In, in August time, it would be dry, as you can imagine, if you imagine fields getting dry, but they're still stunted oaks. These aren't huge oak trees, but they're stunted oaks that dot the countryside and in the distance you can see the hills and in those hills of course the the turkish troops and uh, near chocolate hill in particular scimitar hill they've got their artillery so the men start their advance and they're, they're starting to flush out a few snipers along the way they make it for about half a mile now it, during the advance the men of the fifth norfolk receive an intriguing order which is to move half right now some of the battalion the companies there they had to wait while the other companies kind of followed Ram to make that half-right turn. A dangerous gap soon emerged as the other battalions in the brigade making the attack made their way forward and the Norfolks made, made their way on that half-right turn. As the Norfolk companies were waiting for the companies to align ready for their attack so they could move off again in artillery formation, uh, clearly the brigadier wasn't happy. Brigadier Capel Brunker rides up on his horse cusses Proctor Beecham for being tardy and, and says, come on, you're going to fix bayonets and you're going to go on. So you can imagine this is late afternoon in August. You've got a battalion of lads that are now, they've now been ordered to fix bayonets. So they're going to take the bayonets out and they will flash like heliographs up to the hillside. And it wasn't long after that that, that, that they've, they've drawn fixed bayonets and off they're, they're going in this half-right movement, dangerous wedge, and then suddenly all hell lets loose because the Turkish artillery finds them and they have to, it drives them even faster forward, forward, to get under this barrage that's falling on them. All the time there's lads falling around, and it, they do, some of them make it far forward, up to these farm buildings, and near what they thought was a village or a complex of farm buildings of Anafata. And they push further forward, beyond the farm fences and hedges. So we're, we're getting, it's around about a mile, mile and a half, a few hundred yards beyond the Anafata farm buildings, where suddenly huge numbers of Turkish troops are spotted around the area. Our poor lads are getting pinned down there and they have to fall back rapidly to the farm buildings. Some fall back further. So it's roughly 150 men in that forward area. Evelyn Beck had spotted the danger. He held a line not far 
from the farm buildings to allow the men to fall back roughly there were approximately six or seven men from that forward 150 that made it back and then they had to kind of hold the line and make a fighting retreat until the following morning through the dark hours of darkness under fire a horrible situation and until they got back to more or less the place where they'd started. And so what happened to the men in the Sanjuan Company? How many of them survived the war? How many of them were killed? And how many of them were taken prisoner? Well, if we look at prisoners on the day, there were not that many taken. And there, there are no members of the Sandringham Company, strictly speaking, take, taken prisoner. The losses on that day, you have to remember that the company is, it's amalgamated. So we can't really just take it in isolation. But when you think of the wounded and the killed on that day, you've got a total of about 500 men that are out of the game. And that's, you know, if you think of a battalion going into an attack, maybe 700, 800 men, it's absolutely decimated. And it took quite some time for the wounded to uh, be located because some were stretched off straight away. Others wandered back. Others had found themselves uh, detached from the Norfolk attack. And they found them in lines with the Hants as well nearby. So it was, a, it was a terrible, terrible loss. But they were not completely wiped out. That's the point. They weren't annihilated, but it was a terrible, terrible loss on the day. And finally, Neil, where can people learn more about your research? If they would like, pick up my book, The King's Men, The Sandringham Company and the Norfolk Regiment Territorial Battalions in the First World War. It focuses on the active service battalions. It's published by pen and sword and it's available in all good bookshops please support your local bookshops or you can go to mr amazon or other well-known local on online retailers and purchase a copy there neil thank you very much for your time tom it's a pleasure thank you you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the western front association with me tom thorpe Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.